0: If you enjoy this episode of Obscure Obsessions, please remember to rate us, review us, and subscribe. Thank you for your support. On this episode of Obscure Obsessions. And so I thought this might be a fun exercise because life is miserable. I am so tired of pod people! The Postal Service does not want to deliver remakes. They're really against the whole idea of it. This movie never actually drags. It doesn't feel slow. Why can I not get the title of this movie correct? And now, here are your hosts. Well, hello again. Welcome to Obscure Obsessions. It's great to have you back. Thanks for continuing to tune in. We sincerely appreciate it. I'm your host, Nick Zicario. I'm joined, as always, by my cousin and my co-host, Taylor Zacario. Hello there. And today we're going to talk a little bit about something that I think might be a little bit of a hot-button issue amongst moviegoers, and that is remakes. Now, it's not an uncommon thing anymore for a popular IP to be remade, mostly as a cash grab. I think that that's become part of the zeitgeist. Certainly the term remake has a negative connotation to it. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's always remained the case, and we sort of were talking about the idea of what are actually remakes that might be on the same level as the original, if not better than the original, and what does it take to even make a good remake? And that topic sort of came about because we were both talking about relatively recently. Like this week. Yeah, just just this week. This is a, is a, a fresh topic that we really in fact the movie we're going to be talking about today we both just watched within the last 24 hours and we've never had a full-on conversation about this movie right so this is going to be like muppet treasure island we had many or uh, jurassic park which was the impetus for this whole show tower of terror same thing so this movie which we're talking we're going to talk about today is invasion of the body snatchers from 1978 Now, remind me, is this the movie that you were, like, hunting down, like a a, a lost Jedi? A few months ago, I was really, really in the mood for watching this movie, and you had to either buy or rent it through Amazon Prime or through iTunes or something like that. And I knew that I liked it because I had seen it a number of times before, but there was a specific edition of it that is now out of print from Shout Factory. Amazon had a copy of it for $25, and I was like, that's a steal. Yeah, not Guess bad. what? The U.S. postal system is a hot mess and lost my copy. This almost happened to me with another remake. Right. Uh, King Kong 77. The Postal Service does not want to deliver remakes. <laughs> They're really <laughs> against the whole idea of it. Eventually, I tracked down a copy of it that I wanted, and it was beautiful. And actually, only happened to be within a driving vicinity, so it didn't take that long to arrive. Where did it come from? It came from Clifton. Whoa! So that's only a half hour. That's, from not, that's here. not. That's not bad. Yeah. So I love this particular version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I, it's the only version of the movie I've seen. I'll tell you about my background with this movie. Mm-hmm. I have no background with this movie <laughs> until about until I would say. Five six days ago, Sunday night. Now, this movie, the '78 version, had been in my queue. Mm-hmm. Not has the quartermaster ta- has the Twilight Zone episode aired yet? The uh, Tower of Terror episode aired yet? I don't remember. I don't remember. But yeah, not the queue. Not the uh... let's get this party started. <laughs> and it was in there for a long time. I never got to it. Mm-hmm. And then it it was not available on Prime anymore. And Prime does this annoying thing where when it's not available anymore, it doesn't remove it. It stays in your queue, like mocking you for being so slow <laughs> to watch it. You didn't watch Invasion of the Body Snatchers. <laughs> now and, suffer. And I think the reason I was initially interested in watching this, well, one, I'm a, I'm a Jeff Goldblum fan. Mm-hmm. Love the Goldblum. Love the and Goldblum. And he's really Jeff Goldblumy in this movie. Not Ian Malchemy. Not Ian Malchemy, but Jeff Goldblumy. Right. And. I also was interested in this movie because the director, Philip Kaufman, Mm -hmm. co-wrote and worked on the story for Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was his suggestion to have it be the Ark of the Covenant, so I was interested in it for that reason. And then on Sunday night? Monday? No, no. Saturday night, I saw that not only was the 78 version there, But so was the 56 version. Right. Because when I saw that on Prime 2, I was like, wow, how odd that it just shows up. Yeah, the original film from 56 starring uh, the great great Kevin McCarthy, who you might know from Twilight Zone the movie. Twilight Zone the movie. He was in an episode of Twilight Zone called Long Live Walter Jameson. He was in an episode of Golden Girls called Second Motherhood. And most famously, I think, for a certain generation, Kevin McCarthy was in uh, the original Piranha. Oh, yeah. He was the old man who I think lives on a mountaintop and gets his legs eaten (laughs) off, if I'm remembering correctly. And so I thought this might be a fun exercise Mm -hmm. because life is miserable. <laughs> and I've reached rock bottom. But This is what I consider fun. I'm going to watch these two movies, not back to back. Within the course of a day, though. The course of a day. So I watched the 56 version on whatever day it was, Sunday. And then Monday, I watched the 78 version. I thought it'd be fun to compare the two. Mm-hmm. Which it was. It was a lot of fun. Now let's talk about remakes. Okay. Because as I said, remakes have... A bad connotation. And one of the reasons we picked the 78 version to talk about is because this is a primo... It is almost the Citizen Kane... Of remakes. Of remakes. Because it is a really terrific remake. I think that it's sort of what I was alluding to at the beginning, is that probably within the last 10 to 15 years, there has been just such a boom of remaking all different types of films from various genres... But specifically when we think of remakes, I think now as an audience, we think about live action Disney remakes. Those are that's kind of its own now subgenre. Horror remakes or franchising reboots. Right. And soft reboots in like action films. We watched one two nights ago. Right. <laughs> Actually, we watched uh The Suicide Squad. Right. Which The Suicide which, Squad. Which by using the article makes it a completely it's different a movie. movie. And in fact, if you think about it, the prevalence of remakes is so massive and so present that they had to come up with different words for remakes. Because mm-hmm. you have remakes, you have reimaginings, which is what... The, what um, Tim Burton used to coin, right? Yeah, he called that, uh, I think his uh, Plan of the Apes that. George Miller, director of Babe in the City. And Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> called Fury Road a reimagining. Okay. And then there's, of course, Reboot. Mm-hmm. But a Reboot... I think, is not as negatively viewed upon as a remake. Right, because the word remake instantly makes you think of... It carries with it a certain level of lack of imagination, I think. And a prime example for that, I think, is the Gus Van Sant Psycho remake. It's funny you say that, because I made a list before of remakes I wanted to ask oh, you about. All and, right. I, and I knew you had... I have a very has, very has, angry yeah, reaction with on that, that one. one. Well, okay, that's probably so the the Gus Van Sant one talk about that one cuz that's that, that's probably the worst case scenario yeah. of a remake actually. <laughs> so for anyone who isn't aware of what that particular remake is, it's the 1960 psycho film, the Alfred Hitchcock film. Alfred Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock. Gus Van Sant. The guy who made Good Will Hunting. <laughs> Apparently, it was a passion project where he really just wanted to reshoot the entire film shot for shot, in color, and with modern actors. Not the great Anthony Perkins, who epitomizes Norman Norman Bates. Bates, And did it four times. Four times and is forever typecast. Even when he was in a science fiction movie called The Black Hole, he was still Norman Bates. (laughs) But he was in a spaceship. In deep space getting dragged into a hole. And so Gus Van Sant's brilliant idea is get the guy who was in Lost World and brought a baby T-Rex into an RV. (laughs) What's his name? Nick Van Owen? Isn't that sick that I remember that? Isn't that sick (laughs) and depressing that I remember that? But that, a more actually recent example of something that offensively annoying is Disney's The Lion King. True. Because everyone saw that trailer Everyone knew exactly what they were getting into and knew that it was going to be a literal shot for shot. Yeah. There's some slight variations. They, they, make, they make variations, and this is one of the things that Body Snatchers does well, is the variations it makes are good ones. Mm-hmm. Whereas Lion King, well, Lion King is weird. If you had a spectrum from good remakes to bad remakes, and right. Gus Van Sant's Psycho is in the bad one, Certainly, Lion King is closer to that. But the, the Gus Van Sant one is literally the exact same movie. He literally copied Hitler. Every single frame yeah. is exactly what you saw he in the 1960 version. He literally remade it, which brings a question that I think every remake has to answer. This is the pivotal question. <laughs> But every remake has to answer, which is, why do I exist? Uh-huh. Which is a question we all ask ourselves at some point, <laughs> but particularly if you're a remake. And the Lion King one, I remember when I was even sitting there thinking, like, there's no suspense. You know it's going to happen. You know, And in a case like that, where it was an idea to just capitalize on a name and use modern technology to just redo what you've already seen, yeah. somehow it made it even more lifeless because of the fact that you didn't have really talented animators hand drawing or designing these. And the other big problem with it is it's so realistic until they start to talk because they're lions. Lions don't talk. Why are they? That's the same thing with that, that dinosaur movie. Oh, yeah. From 2000, which was one of the first DVD, second DVD I ever owned after George of the Jungle. Oh. But it, it was at the time very realistic looking. Mm-hmm. It's not anymore, but it was. And then these animals talk and it's, it ruins the whole thing. That's true. Then you have this thing called a reboot. Mm-hmm. Ke- we had a Kevin Smith movie that physically right. called itself you had a reboot. Time, which the idea is that you're going to take... Well, what's the difference, really? I guess that you're just going to take the kernel of the idea, the little core of the idea, and do something different with it? Yeah, I suppose. Like, what's really the definition? And you'll, you'll notice this a lot if you pay attention, where people will say, the, the director is saying, oh, this isn't a remake, this is a reboot. We're not copying anything from the original. Which... That's this funny line that a remake has to walk, and it's similar to a sequel's problem, but it's its own problem, which is that a remake has to be similar enough to the original that people want to see it, but then it has to be different enough that those people don't say, "Oh, it's just a copy." Right. Or I guess a reboot is a reboot. Almost allows you to say that we're taking, if we're talking percentages here, a remake has to borrow, let's say, fifty percent or more from the original reboot almost feels like you have to borrow between 25 to 50 or even less because like batman begins it's very clearly not a remake of the 89 batman Uh it's very clearly a reboot whereas i'm trying to think of an example of well the friday the 13th movie yeah have you seen that that Uh is that markedly different than the first one i mean the the idea between all of those, though, is that it's a central figure, Jason, <laughs> killing a bunch of dumb, horny teenagers. Right. It's just a matter of location, I guess, because in the very first movie, well, spoilers for the very first movie, but it's not actually Jason. Right, it's, it's his, mother. his mother. And He doesn't get his mask until the third one, I think. Right. Yes. I, I've never yes, seen these, but you're right. I've, I've read about them. And in the 2009 remake of it, he's killing specifically teenagers, but they're not at a camp. They're at, like, a lake house. Is the difference between the original Friday the 13th and the remake or reboot Mm -hmm. the same amount of difference between the 89 Batman and Batman Begins? I think that you're comparing two totally different beings, though. Because, like, like, the idea, well, in a situation like that where Batman Begins also is serving as an origin story, whereas the 89 Batman sort of just told you that Batman existed and you just had to go with it that's sort of not really the case with the Friday the 13th. I'm trying to think of an example of where they have a reboot that is very clearly a remake. Uh Uh-huh. I can't think of one. Well, what about the list of remakes that you were talking about? Okay, here's an example of... Here's one that I was trying to think that you have seen. I I noticed that probably most of these, I've seen the original one, and you might have seen... Only the remake. The remake. All right. Okay, this one I know you've seen, because we've talked about this. We've talked about the various remakes of it. You have the 2005 King Kong Mm. compared to the original King Kong. Okay, well, here's the thing. The original King Kong is so primitive and still kind of such an important film because it is a B-movie creature film that the easiest argument to sort of knock it for is that it's now so laughably silly because it's very dated and... Well, the other thing with the... But the the thing that the 2005 remake has that the the original one doesn't is that the remake has a lot of stuff going on. So much stuff that it's three hours long. And one of the things that the invaders from space... No. The invaders or the body snatchers does well is it adds things that enhance the original. Mm -hmm. The King Kong remake adds stuff that bloats it. Well, and there that also came following peter jackson's you know lord of the rings trilogy ending so it was almost an idea of like here's his next big spectacle and i remember at the time when it first came out that i really liked it because it was so cool and it was this really long movie that you had to get through but in subsequent years i've had no interest to revisit it and instead i'd actually prefer to watch the 78 king kong 76 sorry uh 76 one because I think that that one is such a different story to tell about King Kong. Because what I like about the 76 Kong is it follows exactly the same story in broad strokes. Right. But the specifics are different. Yeah, like, that's true. the Carl Denham character, who's like the movie producer. That's different. That's totally different. It's He's now Jeff and- Bridges, who's a zoologist <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a hippie and and there's no movie crew at all and instead it's an expedition to get oil right but jessica lang mm-hmm. plays a kind of dippy girl who becomes an actress but an actress for commercials that, that oh right. that charles Groen wants to shoot using kong as like the michelin man for the yeah. company <laughs> so it takes the the kernel of the idea and does something different with it true that one might mock the original one a little bit, but it at least treats the original one as what it is, which was a silly monster movie. The, the whole romance that goes on in the Peter Jackson one? No. That sort of begins in the 76 one where Kong is horned up for <laughs> Jessica Lang. Here's another one that I want to throw at you and see what your thoughts are on, okay. on remakes in general. If you have a bunch of movies uh-huh. that are all based on the same book, Are those actually remakes? For example, there are 55 billion versions of A Christmas Carol. Okay. Are those remakes of each other? Or are they just based on the same book? Because that's another thing that filmmakers will want to throw out at an audience saying, Oh, no, this isn't a remake of Mm -hmm. the more famous movie. We're just basing it on the same source material. It's sort of a, a fine line to walk, yeah, like you tough. said, because in the case of that, everyone has a specific version of a Christmas carol or a Christmas carol story, like I'm talking Albert Finney Scrooge. Oh yeah Oof. or Scrooged. Scrooge, Bill Murray. My favorite is the one with Alistair Sim. That's probably the most famous one. There's the Patrick uh, Stewart one. But like the Patrick Stewart one, if you ever watch that one, is very obviously influenced by the Alistair Sim version. Mm-hmm. But they're not technically remakes of each other, though they are all remaking the same the same story. So, so that's a tricky one to walk. One. It's and a tough one. The problem is, in it's not the exactly case... trigonometry, but it's pretty tough. But in the case of that, that's a story that's going to be remade until the Earth explodes. You know, right. like so they're remakes, but they're not remakes of each other. Yeah, we have seen a uh, staged production of. Christmas Couple Carol times. on Broadway a few times actually and Who is the most guy? recent time that we saw it was with uh, Campbell Scott oh, yes but the show had a totally different structure than any of right, the because it was that still. minimalist there was no set right if I remember on correctly on top of the fact that it sort of starts midway through his night right, and then you work in sort of a non-linear uh, storytelling so right. you kind of leapfrog back and forth through time in that particular play. Right. So what I'm, what I'm getting at is the term remake is so... Loosey-goosey, it, it, if you will. It, it's a convoluted... Well, okay. The Grinch. The All Grinch. Right. The Grinch and the Boris Karloff cartoon Grinch mm-hmm. both obviously are based on the Dr. Seuss book. Right. But the movie obviously takes stuff from the cartoon... Some of that came from the book, but some of it didn't. Like the Grinch being green. In the yeah. book, the Grinch is gray. In the cartoon, he's green. And then there's the the shot of his, his Tim right. Curry smile. <laughs> so the Grinch is a remake of the short, but it's also... And in that case, by the way, too, though... By it... the way, this isn't important at all in life. <laughs> <laughs> but we have to talk about something. But in that case, too... They couldn't possibly make a a full-length movie, A, based off of just a short book like that, or even deny the fact that the television special is so universally loved that they had to sort of pay deference to it in a live-action film. I think there you hit on a really important point, which is that if you're remaking a classic movie, you're remaking that movie regardless... Of whether it has a source material. Uh-huh. For example, if you ever made an- another Jurassic Park that was based on the Michael Crichton book, no. Yeah. You're remaking the film because the everyone film has seen the film. It's so iconic. If you do another version of Harry Potter, you're still remaking the Daniel Radcliffe ones because right. they're so iconic. However, if you remake something like Invaders of the Body Snatchers, did I say that right? Invasion. Invader? Invasion of the Bodies... I'm getting Invaders from Mars and Invasion of the Bodies... <laughs> However, if you remake that movie, which was not as... It was not a same classic like Star Wars uh-huh. or, or 2001 and Space Odyssey, which I don't like, but which I won't deny is a classic, you can get away with more things. Here's another one I don't know if you've seen. You have the True Grit movie. Right. The, I've only seen the remake. Okay, but that one, when that was coming out in 2010, yeah, the people involved were the Coen brothers. I thought it was Coen and brothers. And they kept saying, no, no, this isn't a remake of the 1960s John Wayne classic. It's an adaptation of the Charles Portis book. Uh-huh. Now, I think that that gets away with that claim because while True Grit is a classic for certain people, it's not a universal classic that everyone can like recognize the iconography from the movie. They can make that claim because you're dealing with something that is not... It's a- more obscure. It's more obscure, exactly. And so that, I think, leads us into the Invaders of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. We'll talk about what the plot exactly is, but one of the things that Kaufman had going from the beginning is the original Invaders of the Body Snatchers... Why can I not get the (laughs) title of this movie correct? (laughs) Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which from here on out will be referred to as Body Snatchers, as I can't remember the first part, (laughs) was a good movie, and it actually still works in its own way. It has its own creepy vibe. Mm -hmm. It has its own unique sensibility to it. It was directed by Don Siegel, who's a very famous director. He also directed Escape from Alcatraz. He he did... Coogan's Bluff. He did a whole bunch of movies with... I think he did the first Dirty Harry. Oh, all right. So he was a... he In the 78 version... He has a cameo. He's the cab driver. Right. Who who, who, was, who apparently... He, he was blind. Right, and so when they were in the back seat, they were like, he's going to kill us. And if you ever watch the, the 56 version, which you should... It's only an hour 20. Yeah, it's really short. And it feels like a long episode of Twilight Twilight Zone. Zone. It really That really was what I was going to actually ask when we got to the comparison of it. I was going to say, is it sort of like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, in fact, I would forgive you if you thought it was. If you just turned it on TV. Because it it looks and feels that way. Okay. And it has good movement to it. Mm Mm-hmm. And so what they did with the remake of Body Snatchers is they took the same basic story and they made changes to it and they added stuff to it and subverted things, but not the subversion of, you know, Luke is a hermit or Quicksilver is a boner joke. It's a different type of toying with the audience expectations you're saying well, where it's well, not so far good or bad well not even their expectations i think the majority of people who saw this movie probably had never seen the original one. Oh, okay so because my point is it's not on the same level of star wars got it where you know who luke is supposed to be or even nowadays with the mcu you know who quicksilver is supposed to be mm-hmm. it's more if you're a fan of the original one you know the subversion and if you don't Just that that's how the movie happens to unfold. I see what you're saying. Okay, so I was reading an article on Den of Geek. Okay. And this writer here, Ryan Lambie, wrote an article about why he thinks Invasion of the Body Snatchers 78 is a great remake. And here's Mm -hmm. a little bit of what he says. The film is a prime example of a perfect remake. It's more than just a reworking of the same elements or a soulless cover version of a popular song. It's a remake that deconstructs the original, understands what's great about it, then reassembles those components into something new and quite terrifying, which I think is a good way of putting it. Because yeah, the same elements are in both. Let's go through the elements. Well, and Why don't you I just tell the basic story of it. Okay. Without so, don't spoil the ending. No. I, mean, I have to talk about the ending. But we can't. But I won't ex- be specific. say what happened. Yeah, I won't be specific. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Not invaders, but invasion. No. The title basically tells you what's kind of happening, right. which is. In this particular version, you have an alien life form that has come from outer space, finds its way in San Francisco, and starts to duplicate all of the residents that it comes into contact with, and discards the original version. Meaning, if you're a human, you will be replicated, and you, the human, are going to be eliminated. You have all the same memories. But you're a soulless husk. Husk of a person. Right. Much like myself. A group of friends who are part of the health department. Well, uh, part. Donald Sutherland is a health inspector. Right. And he finds a rat... This is a rat turd, not a caper. (laughs) If it's a caper, try it. (laughs) (laughs) And then you have Brooke Adams. Who's also part of... Who's another scientist in the health department. Brooke Adams, by the way, was really terrific in this movie. I wish he had done more bigger things. Married to Tony Shalhoub. Oh. who also played Monk, and she's like a scientist also. And then you have Veronica Cartwright and Jeff Goldblum, who <laughs> run a mud bath. <laughs> and he's a struggling writer. It's and then like, you also have an right. incredible cameo
1: well, cameo? Not, not cameo, supporting, supporting role, supporting
0: role, supporting role. The one and only Spock, Mr. Leonard Nimoy. Well, you also have Robert Duvall as the priest. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> the strangest cameo, because I didn't realize that was him and until, then I, until the second viewer. Yeah, oh, yeah, when I re- read that. And then go on from, and then the basic is, these four friends essentially come across what's happening, but don't know who to trust, don't know how to solve the problem, and they're being hunted left and right by these replicants. What in popular culture, it's called pod people. Yeah. But the term is never used in either version. Mm-mm. Although so, it has entered the, the lexicon as, like, if someone's acting motionless, oh, you're a pod person. Yeah. And well, I think it's mentioned that the pods themselves are what the replicants are being born out of. Right. 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 So this, like, stuff has come from outer space. It grows into these pods. And then while you sleep, these pods essentially squirt out a replicant of you, right. which then takes your place. It takes your memories, takes your thoughts, and takes everything about you down to like a little scratch, and it replicates you. And then you, and then you crumble into nothing. Yeah, yeah, you decompose. And then this per, and then this, this replicant takes you. All, is is now you, and you're right. gone. Except you're now, your memories have been copied into a, a alien. An al- you're an alien. Is there anything more you want to say, plot-wise? Not necessarily plot-wise. I, w- I really want to talk about just the actual like nitty-gritty of it. Right. The movie. Well, here's the uh, here's the plot of the fifty-eight version. The exact same things happen. Really. Except there's no Leonard Nimoy character. Okay. It's set in a small town, not San Francisco. Okay. And that's it. Wow. So the there are other differences, but right. But the seventy-eight version just takes those and adds to them. And by the way, another person who is in Invasion of the Body Snatchers is Kevin McCarthy. Right. As it's never said who he is, but one of the things that I read is that someone theorized that he's the same exact character from. Well, he's saying the exact same. His last lines in the 56 version are, are his lines, lines in this one. So someone has, you know, it's like a, a fan theory that, oh, maybe he's just been running around the country for 20 years. For 20 years. And. There's nothing that says it is or isn't. I mean, the only odd coincidence is that Donald Sutherland's last name in the movie is the exact same last name, so that's a little odd. Right. But it's a fun fan theory. Yeah. So let's get into it and and, and talk about the movie. So the reason that I was first attracted to this movie was because it had a few really fantastic actors that I loved. This is a great cast. And they were all sort of in early stages of their career, if not their prime. And I love films from the 70s. I think that era is so cool on film. And I love a good sci-fi horror movie that also is a little bit more like either low budget or it's just things that are happening in frame and really there. And by the way, you're right, because it's a horror movie, but it's not the jump out at you horror. It's the horror of disgust and repulsion and, and psychological horror. And actually, what I think this movie does so well is... It really succeeds at creating paranoia. Oh, definitely. Because this movie almost has like film noir in a way. Like there's you know that the characters that are saying, Oh, they're they're people being replaced and you've seen it actually happen already. So yeah. you you know that they're not crazy, but there's long, extensive sequences of them trying to find help and trying to like figure out. And there is out- no help who is or who isn't a, a pod person. Right, and they sort of slowly realize that everyone around them is untrustworthy. Now, you want to know what my theory is on this? Sure. Okay, the 1956, and, and I've read other people, so it's not mine own, but I, th- I was thinking it while I was watching it. The 56 version is a metaphor or parable for 1950s fear of communism. That, oh, oh God, there's a communist living among me and I don't know who it is, because that, okay. was, that was the Red Scare. Sure. The 78 version... Is, is that the, technology? Well, I it could be, but I think it's post-Watergate-Vietnam disillusionment with authority figures. Oh. And, because the people who are in charge, Nixon... Sure. I can't trust him because... He broke in, which seems minimal nowadays if you right. think about it. Oh, well, yeah, so? But I think in the, the 70s, this paranoia, and you're right, paranoia is a great word because also conspiracy is used, talked about a lot. And, it's, and the and, word mass hysteria, because there's that montage where Donald Sutherland's trying to find people, like he's calling on the phone and he's going into different phone booths and like yeah. people keep rapping at the door and there are different phone calls and one of them is like do you know what mass hysteria looks like yeah. Mr. Fan- uh, or, yeah and someone says like don't tell anyone about this Right. Stop and if you think about it, the 70s had the parallax view three days of the condor mm-hmm. all the presidents men all these conspiracy type of thrillers and in a way this is one too. this is a outer space conspiracy right. thriller i the reason i also said the theme of technology is because i feel like There was this burgeoning bubble growing of technology being implemented more and more. And that's continued throughout the course of human history. But this was in the late 70s. And so television's getting more popular. Cars are getting a little bit faster. You know, it just, I I feel like there's always going to be that theme in movies going forward. Definitely about, yeah, and about these changes that are out of my control. Right. Oh, the other thing that I liked with... Well, let's talk about... Hmm, there's so many good characters and, and fun characters to talk about. I want to actually say this, yeah. too, though. that like The movie is two hours long, and the original movie is only an hour and 20. Yeah. Yet, this movie never actually drags. It doesn't feel slow. It's the wrongfully accused of outer space invasion movies. Actually, exactly. It starts, and immediately... Things are happening. Yeah, it doesn't... I mean, literally, it begins with... And this isn't a spoiler because it's the credits. Right, the opening (laughs) credits show you. It begins with, like, these little, like, ethereal, almost like... They look like amoebas. Yeah, amoebas or, like, little bits of, uh... I don't even know what you would call it. Like, little feathery things... Right. ...that are floating through a dead planet, going through outer space, and then we, we track that, and then we track it to one of our main characters, uh... Brooke Adams. Brooke Adams, who plays Elizabeth. Elizabeth Swan. Right. I am so tired of pod people. <laughs> but you're right; it begins right away, and there's really no—the only moment close to a down moment is when they're eating the stir fry. But uh, even that, they're discussing something what's happening, moving to the plot, yeah. right? And she does that weird thing with her eyes. That actually was more disturbing than <laughs> the scene where he almost gets turned into a pod person. Right. Well, the other thing that I really found impressive about the movie is that it's technical effects and visual effects still anytime there's something that's really tangibly there for another actor to, to use or to, to yeah. it doesn't beat that, you know, because we all know that visual effects and CGI have gone miles and miles since. And sometimes it can be a useful like addition, right? When you don't know that it's being, but used. I mean, but, but you're right. Like when you see that there's a scene where it, Donald Sutherland is falling asleep, and the pods are starting to squirt out new copies new, of new copies of the four characters, and it's all this gooey, and 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 the, and the the pod is sort of like an infant almost, right? And it's and it's aging. It's up got his, to him. his, like mucusy membrane and like. But- that's there. That's right. actually there in the scene. It's not a giant starfish <laughs> that is not there. And it's it's just the fact too that it looks as disturbing as you would think that it would right. be, and it really is disturbing. It's right. Not, and people put in certainly put in effort to make it look disturbing, but it's tangible. I don't know. There, there really actually isn't a, a that annoying of a character because you know in a movie like this where you have two people that might have more you know, knowledge of what's happening that that we have right. our scientists. Yeah, then you might have in every sort of bad, Horror movie, you have like the one dumb, annoying yeah, person the, who like sits there and cries the whole time. The only one I guess is close to that is it, Veronica is Veronica Cartwright. Cartwright, but she's so good and so interesting, and and she's not one dimensional. Probably it's yeah. more by her own performance mm-hmm. because you have Donald Sutherland, who is the the, the word stuffy comes to mind that he's okay. he's kind of stuffy, he, and he's kind of um, snobby a little bit, and, and, and that's not a, a dig on him, but it it, it makes Here's what the the original film doesn't have that the remake does. The original film is they're all kind of straight laced. Kevin McCarthy wears a suit. Uh-huh. He's the town doctor. The female lead, very beautiful, wearing a dress. Mm-hmm. This movie they're more disheveled. Oh, they're that's more, a good way. To they're it. more flawed, and mm-hmm. they're all very busy doing things. Whereas yeah. in the original one, they're a small sleepy town. It's a mm-hmm. different feel. And so I like that the Donald Sutherland character is a little bit of a snob. He knows that that's not a caper. That's a rat turd. <laughs> and he's a little bit emotionless until things really start going crazy for Which, him. Which, like I said, things start to go bad pretty quickly in this but movie. But he does keep his composure through mo I think until a certain point when something happens in his arms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that he loses it. Actually, you know, that's something I also really liked about the movie was the whole love story between Donald Sutherland and... Why am I blanking on her name right now? Elizabeth. Elizabeth. What's her her human name? Brooke Adams. Brooke Adams. Well, there's something, too, because, like I said, it's sort of a a standard trope, right, to have the would-be lovers, and then they eventually get together at the end. (laughs) But this is done so well because they're both so good playing off of each other. Yeah. And I think, too, that the movie lends... To being that this is pretty realistic that this these two people would even though there's you know they're leading separate lives and you know they're just friends and it's subtle though yeah their relationship it's not overdone you don't really know for certain that they like each other until you know that they do right I mean you know that they like each other as friends they start as friends. But then, yeah, it's not, and it's not the focus, which I'm so glad because I don't want that to be the focus of it. No, it's called invasion of the body snatchers. Yeah, and my favorite scene. Okay, can you guess what my favorite scene was? Uh, is it when Brooke Adams, Veronica Cartwright, and Donald Sutherland have to stay in line like they have to walk? No, but that's a good scene too. It's the scene where Donald Sutherland is is making stir fry, (laughs) (laughs) and he gives Brooke Adams a. I think it's a uh, celery. Yeah. Uh, I love food scenes. Well, also <laughs> looks really good. He's got like he's got a walk that he looks has really a, beat up. And he has a massive knife that is way too big to be cutting carrots. Why with. is he cutting celery with a butcher's <laughs> like? A meat cleaver. (laughs) That's how you know he's disheveled. He only has a butcher's knife. There's something interesting, too, though, that, like... I was reading that Philip Kaufman wanted this particular version to be set in San Francisco. I think it's either his hometown or it's just an area that he loves a lot. Because the original is a small town, but in California. And this set of characters are all kind of like... I wouldn't say stuffy like you were saying either, but they're a little bit more like... They're hip with you know what's happening in politics. They're not like yeah, like like um. Is blue collar the one that's like middle class? No, white collar. All right, white they're collar. more white collar. They're a little bit more like they Jeff, might be affluent and they might be a little bit more. They're certainly. I don't know the well. I don't know that. I don't know, know, that, the, I don't know that Veronica Cartwright is. Yeah, because she owns true. a mud bath. But Jeff Goldblum, who plays her husband certainly wants to be white collar because Mm. he's talking about, he's, he's he's bemoaning where are the Jack London's (laughs) where? And he's really, and I couldn't quite tell what he, I mean, I know he works at a mud bath place. Right. I know he wants to be a writer. I know he's really ticked off (laughs) with uh, the Leonard Nimoy character. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Because it's, it's not like teenagers or something running around, horror movies left and right and they're actually people in position well particularly Donald Sutherland and uh, Brooke Adams they're they're people in positions of power who could get something done oh if it weren't for the fact that everyone else around them is turning into aliens aliens. but the Jeff Goldblum character I like because I guess he adds some level of humor to it but he also is just so charming yeah Uh, there's a scene where um, he, he has one of my best shrieks ever in a movie where Veronica Cartwright is sort of saying goodnight to the customers and and leading them out of the mud bath place and she goes back to see her husband. Oh, I know what you're talking about. And she goes into, it's one of those like stalls with like a curtain and she opens it and she goes in there's one of these pod bodies on the table. Mm -hmm. And she screams and cries because she thinks it's Jeff Goldblum because it looks like very similar to Jeff Goldblum. Right. And then Jeff Goldblum comes in without his shirt on. He's very skinny. Right. And he goes, ah! <laughs> he kind of throws up these dinosaur hands. <laughs> the other thing, that, a little bit of trivia, I think is, is interesting, that it ties back into other things we we're interested in. In the original film, that character, same name, is played by King Donovan. King Donovan was married to Imogene Coca, Imogene Coca and Edna herself was Aunt Edna in the original Vacation movie, starring Chevy Chase, who was a jerk apparently in real life and <laughs> might be an actual pod person. <laughs> now Veronica Cartwright, I you know the thing of her is I always forget how many movies she's been in. That's a good point because she was Dallas right in Alien. Oh, was she Dallas good point. in yeah. Alien? She was the mom in the Flight of the Navigator. Oh, you're right. You did mention she as a, as a child actress, she was in The Birds. Oh, wow. And so she, And I always liked Veronica Cartwright whenever she shows up in a movie. There is, though, the character we haven't really talked a lot oh, yeah. about, which is the great Leonard Nimoy. You know what? what's funny about Leonard Nimoy is every time I hear his voice, what do you think I hear first? Huh. The first movie that pops into my head when I hear his voice. My first logical guess would be... No. Spock. It's good. not going to be, but no, it's specifically Spock from The Voyage Home. No. <laughs> good, good guess. His voice. Voice? Right. And now I'm like, I'm drawing a blank. I can't think out. of a line of dialogue, but he drinks something and has a bad reaction. Oh, the Page Master. Page master. Whenever I hear his voice, I immediately think Dr. Jekyll. It he was Dr. Jekyll he was Dr. and Dr. I, Mr. Hyde. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of what he says. I can't think of a line, but he, his voice is so recognizable. And in this, well, how do we talk about this? I character? don't want to spoil yeah. anything, yeah. but. He's a complicated character. He's, he's not in the original. He's one. like a. He's essentially a Dr. Phil. Yeah. And then he's he, writing uh, self help books, he's a psychiatrist. And... And Jeff Goldblum is really jealous of him because he firstly doesn't think that he's that good of a writer, yeah. but he also wants to be as successful as him. And it's implied, though, I don't think it's ever fully stated that he kind of just churns out these self-help books. Yeah. I think, I think Jeff Goldblum actually says he, he churns gets like them one out every six months. Every six months. So it's implied that he's kind of like, he'll have like a, something to say that has really no depth to it. It's just kind of an aphorism. Yeah. He's a friend of Donald Sutherland's who's brought in to help calm the hysterical people however he does that at his like book signing and which he is throws like throws <laughs> jeff Goldblum against a wall <laughs> and then he, he yells at brooke adams from that he's like there how did that make you feel <laughs> do you, you want r- to r- end your relationship now <laughs> and it's like whoa man do you want to run away <laughs> the other thing that's interesting his, about his character his is weird that glove that glove is strange. <laughs> so he wears a fingerless glove. A half glove, I think it's called. That yeah, it only covers the back of his hand. And it's like something Madonna would have worn. That since his character, I don't think existed in the original. No, it was original. It was a way for him to make his character more identifiable. So it was like, I mean, not only that was were you Spock, You're but right. like now in this particular role, oh, half glove guy is. I don't know that it makes that much difference in terms of his perf- his performance is great. His performance is great, and, and it actually, is sad to think that he was forever typecast as just you know as just that one character when yeah. he was obviously very good at other things too. He also directed Three Men and a Baby, and two or three of the two Star Trek ones, and a really bad Gene Wilder movie called Anything But Love. Oh, where Gene Wilder has a baby, not pregnant, but he gets a baby, right? But Leonard Nimoy's character is, towards the midpoint of the movie, is when you start to suspect there's something yeah. up with him. Yeah. And he's really good at playing that part because, like, like we said, the hook of these aliens is that once you're replicated, you lose all human emotion and you're essentially just a robot also. Yeah. Like, you're, you have no way of... For example, and here's a really good example that, that, that's really creepy. And one of the good, th- great things about this movie is this is a perfect movie to rewatch a couple times. Mm-hmm. Because once you know the twist, the second time you watch it, and I can attest to this, is that the movie reads in a totally different way. way. Like, you realize, oh, I can't trust her. Or he's up to something. Or, oh, I know why he makes that weird look. Right. It's a totally different experience. Like, without- there's a great scene when... Donald Sutherland breaks into Brooke Adams' home because he's afraid something's going to happen to her, and she's getting really tired, and they already think that her boyfriend is a replicant. Right. So he breaks into the house, and he sees that there is a replicant that's being born, and so he grabs Brooke Adams out, and they cart her away so that she can be hidden and still get sleep. He calls the police, and they arrive straight to the boyfriend's house, and the boyfriend's sitting there in, like, a smoking jacket, and he's, like, drinking. And he still is, like, completely stoic and, like, saying, you know, this man is a lunatic. I have no, you know, I don't know where my girlfriend is. (laughs) And it's crazy because Donald Sutherland is the one who looks impassioned and everything. But when you rewatch that scene and you sort of know what's actually happening, it is very sort of distressing I know 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 exactly because there's a character who's very emphatic and we realize at a certain point right and when you go back you realize right it takes on a whole other aspect the scene I was talking about that's also a good scene about how the the horror of this is the lack of humanity of the pod people Mm -hmm. and one of those examples is in um Kevin McCarthy jumps on the car and is screaming about, they're here, they're here, you're next. And he's being chased by a A ton of people. A mob. And then he runs off screen down the street. And you hear a car just sort of skid to a halt. Right. And then you you hear the reactions of Donald Sutherland and Brogams. And then the car moves around and pulls up. And Kevin McCarthy, spoiler, but get over it, (laughs) is dead on the ground. But all these people are just standing around not scared. even looking at him. Yeah, not They're even, just looking out. Right, they don't even care. And what's kind of interesting in the urban setting is that that's not that different necessarily from <laughs> real life. <laughs> true, like true. If you go to New York, most people are so busy, you could drop dead and people would walk over you. Yeah. And that's uh, That's, that's a, actually a good point, too, is that it makes it even more distressing because yeah. there is this aspect where... In a busy hustle and bustle place, there is no humanity. And going even off of that more, people in the movie are so busy initially that they don't have time to listen to a conspiracy. <laughs> like like a thing is going on around them, but they're so wrapped up in their own lives uh-huh. that they're not paying attention to it. Which is another, when I was talking about subversions, that's an interesting subversion from the original film. In the original film, which is a small town, the horror is you know, everyone knows each other oh, Johnny's not acting right, or Tommy is different. Right, my next-door neighbor could be out to get me. Right. The difference, though, here is it's everyone's not paying attention. Tommy's different, but no one's paying attention to it. Yeah. So it's it's a subtle difference, but a really cool difference. But at that same time... To, I guess, to me, that feels a little bit more familiar living near a big city yeah. where there is hustle and bustle. And that if something like this were happening, how would you get anyone's attention? And you know what's also kind of interesting when you watch it a second time, and I was thinking about this. I don't know when people start turning into pods. Like even We even, know specific characters because we see things. Right, but like, was the Robert Duvall character... True. A pod in the opening shot, sh- not the opening shot, but in the first scene with Brooke Adams, she's walking through a playground, and these kids are being led by the school teacher. And there's one in the front, and the one in the back. The school teacher has this very strange. She like looks over her shoulder suspiciously at Brooke Adams as uh-huh. she's walking by. Is that school teacher already a pod? True. It's like I don't know when. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, it's a very strange because at the same like you're right. There's so much happening in the background, and there's so many people around. Yeah, that could be as early as the first few seconds of the movie. Yeah, or it could be happening before before the movie began. And if this is a sequel to the other film, it's been happening since 1956. Right, it's just it's taken a while for it to get there. (laughs) I'm trying to think of another. Yeah, I wanted to just say one thing that's kind of funny about the Leonard Nimoy character. Yeah, so at a certain point. Things are acting very strange with him. And I will say that his demise in the movie is very, not foreshadowed, but if you're a Star Trek fan, he finds himself in a very (laughs) similar situation. I hadn't even thought of that. You're right. Good. Excellent point. Excellent point. (laughs) If you've you've seen The Wrath of Khan, you'll know what that means. Yeah. yeah. Another thing going off of that in terms of the pod people is another addition that's a great addition from the original film is their scream is they have this pointing and they open their mouth and there's this just really like shrill. Like, like a like a what's that called? Like a banshee scream. Uh huh. That wasn't in, in the original film. The original film was more about just their lack of emotion. But this another again, this addition works. Whereas, you know, adding it that I don't know, I'm trying to think of an addition that doesn't work in The Lion King. All <laughs> of them in uh, the addition of. Uh, Did we like Aladdin? Eh, you were iffy on that one. I, don't yeah. know, I, I I remember thinking I liked the Jasmine editions. Yes. But I didn't like other editions. The lack of Gilbert Gottfried also... Didn't help. Didn't help. The other character who's kind of fun in this movie is the boyfriend, Jeffrey. Yeah. Who, his introduction scene is he has these really 70s earphones, or not earphones, headphones. headphones on. He kind of looks like Lobot. You know, in um, Empire Strikes Back, he's the bald assistant of Lando Calrissian. He kind of has that same But He's listening to something and also watching like a basketball game. I I think he, well, because it's a radio. So he's listening Um. to the radio of, at first I thought, wait a minute, he's using a wireless headset in 1978, but no, he's listening to like the radio. It's a radio. Got it. Got it. And he goes from being very animated, very animated, as a dentist, to being—he starts off in the movie wearing like <laughs> essentially like a nightgown. Yeah, and he goes—he's like wearing a full three-piece suit and yeah. completely emotion, emotionless. But uh, I also liked. Okay, well, I told you my favorite scene, which was the teriyaki walk scene. <laughs> what was your favorite scene in this? I really love the montage where Donald Sutherland keeps going around to different phone booths, trying to get in contact with yeah. people from various different organizations or it, like he's like trying to call the FBI. Or things. I thought you liked the scene where they throw a, a uh, champagne bottle. That's why I say stuffy. Now I'm thinking of because these two chefs are cooks throw. Yeah. He comes out of the, he's reporting the restaurant for having been uh, having, having... turds in their <laughs> soup reasonable complaint <laughs> and he comes back and he sees two cooks standing off in, and, they're, in an alley. and they're just like smoking in the the alleyway but his car is not totaled but the the windshield is basically busted in by a, a champagne bottle. and he says something about like oh i think they used good champagne or something like that yeah but again i, I like that bit of it, which I think helps to elevate the character and give him a little bit of something more than just, this is a B-movie, he's the doctor. You know, he cooks, He has. he's refined, mm-hmm. he clips out newspapers. and which I have to focus on that the next time I watch, about what the point of that was, where he's always clipping right. out newspapers. But I also think before we end, we do have to actually sort of briefly talk about the final... Few minutes of the movie, well, without giving anything away. Well, let's also mention the most. Her- what's your, okay? What's the most horrific scene you think in the movie? Because the, there's the, the there's scene two that come to mind. The scene where me. he where the pods. That's pretty. That's that's a great scene. Well, when he's falling asleep and they start replicating yeah. him and his friends. That's yeah. pretty intense. And it reminded me a lot of the practical effects in John Carpenter's The Thing. That was another. That's another remake I had on my list. That's a perfect because the original was the thing from outer space, thing from another world, oh, another world. And then they did the the thing, and then they did the thing again in 2011. But the other scene that's really, I mean, at least it's shocking is when <laughs> I'll say there's a specific creature, yeah, there's a creature in there. That story. shows up and someone has a rightfully very <laughs> intense reaction to the creature that was creepy cuz And what's even creepier with that one is the effects on that, not 100% great, but because they're not 100% great... It's even more... It's even more disturbing. I I was really freaked out. Also, speaking of that, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but... Here's a hint. Beethoven second. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) But we've mentioned that there was the random cameo from... uh, Robert Duvall. Robert Duvall. There's a recurring character played by Jerry Garcia who was a guitarist for the Grateful Dead. You're right. You doesn't he knock on Well, he's the banjo player. Cor- 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 right, he's a banjo player. He's a banjo player. Okay, so the final moments of this movie are probably is it the most uh remembered scene from the movie? It's so remembered that once I saw the final what's kind of fun, well, yeah, the final image, I remembered, "Oh, that's this movie. Yeah. Because I had seen this final image, which we won't spoil the specifics of what happens. Uh-huh. I don't know if you call it, like, the most famous shot of the movie, though. Like, is it? I, th- I guess so. I think so. I think so. It's the one that I certainly recognize. You'll know what's happening. Here, here Here's it in broad strokes. The heroes lose. Yeah. It, this is not a movie where... It's sort of also telegraphed for you at a certain point that how the movie's going to end is probably what you're hoping won't happen. Right, and the heroes make a valiant effort to stop what they think is the production... Well, the one character, well, Donald Sullen, the production of the pods in that warehouse. Yeah. He sort of discovers that, oh, this is way out of my control, and I loved that ending. Yeah. Because it's so real. Because... (laughs) It's if, hopeless, right? If you were if you were in a situation such as that, the odds are you're they're way out. In of a your way, opinion. we were in our own version of this. <laughs> <laughs> in real, life. I, I was thinking about the whole time I was watching. I was like, oh, this is uncomfortable because you can draw certain parallels certain between <laughs> the real world right now and that, and this hopelessness that he faces in the end, and everyone who's left in the end, right. That they face. I think the point we've been trying to make with this particular film is that this is a remake that maybe isn't better than the original. No, it's its own It's its thing. own creation. And I think that the reason that it stuck out for so many years is that, like you said, it took the kernels of the idea. Yeah. It followed some story beats, but it also filled in its own a lot of gaps with its own stuff right so if we go back to that central question of why do I exist well this one thematically if it is about post Watergate's disillusionment that's a heavy theme Mm -hmm. it has great acting in it and like you say it, it takes the stuff from the original honors it doesn't directly repeat it but riffs off of it to make it its own thing right where the two can stand totally separately even though they share the same title. Right, and even though they share the same source material. Right. Because it was a book. And that's what a good remake... Is, the re, is remake the right word for this? Because I think that's what I'm saying is, like, if you're going to try to do a new version of similar source material or a previously existing source material, yeah. it should be that you can distinguish the two... For an example, yeah. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory versus Willy Wonka and the Chocolate okay. Factory. That's another example where Tim Burton was saying, no, this isn't an, a remake of the Gene Wilder one. This is another adaptation of uh, the, the Roll the, the Doll book. But you can look at just one single image from either of those two films yeah. and immediately be able to tell which one's which. Right. You know that they're, they're distinct enough. And, you know, this whole idea we've talked about, about remakes having a bad connotation. Really, every film based on a book is a remake. The Godfather is a remake of its of, a of the book. novel. They took the novel and remade it into a film. So I think that, you know, the term remake, the problem with it is that you do have all these crappy remakes. And I think culturally speaking, it's about taking it from not just being a word that we throw around to a film that's clearly just meant to capitalize on something. Yeah. And I think if you're going to look for a good example of how to remake something, I would say Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I said the title right. You did. 1978. There were subsequent remakes. I didn't realize that there were so many of them, There too. was one in 93. Which was, I think, just called Body called Snatchers. The bo- yeah, called Body Snatchers in 93, starring... Isn't Forrest Whitaker in that? Uh, Forrest Whitaker, Meg Tilly, Gabrielle Anwar. I don't know who that is. And Arlie Ermey, who who was from... uh, Everyone's favorite... Full uh, Metal Jacket. Full Metal Jacket. And then there was one called The Invasion. Which was with Daniel Craig and Nicole Kidman, right? Nicole Kidman and Veronica Cartwright is in that one also. Really? And that's another one where they tried to say... See, here it says that, that, that the director crafted a different story as an original concept to reflect contemporary times. It's a remake of... Uh, <laughs> I don't care what it, what he says. From what I know, that one is not well-liked. Got it. The Invasion. I remember there being a trailer or two for Yeah, I, re- I remember it vaguely but I, also. I almost thought that it was one of those ones that felt like it was made for TV. The other one, I think it has sort of... It has a 70% on Rotten Tomatoes. This one? The, uh, 93 version. Oh. So... That's higher than I would have so expected. So that one's more mixed. But I think if you're gonna watch one... Go with this watch one. Watch the 78 version. And if, and if you want to watch another one, the 56 version, is great in its own way, and it has Kevin McCarthy in it, which still can't be... And it has Carolyn Jones, who was the original Morticia Adams, Really? ...in The Adams Family. The what show, the series. So... I say check out Invasion of the Body Snatchers because it's fantastic. And there's also a movie called Invaders from Mars. That one you can disregard. <laughs> that one is an example of a nothing B-movie that shouldn't it, exist. shouldn't exist. So that does it for us. Another episode of Obscure Obsessions has come to a close. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, or review the show wherever podcasts are available. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. As always, I am your host, Nick Zaccario joined by my cousin and co-host Taylor Zaccario. We will see you next time, and if you're going to fall asleep, make sure there's no possible alien life forms around you. And if you're going to be turned into a pod person, have a nice teriyaki wok dinner beforehand. Nice <laughs> stir-fry. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Obscure Obsessions is directed, written, and edited by Taylor and Nick Sicario, and is a co-production with Tan Productions. Special thanks to Anchor for podcast distribution, and to Twin Musicom, Stockwaves, and Walpurnian Music for providing the score. Follow Obscure Obsessions on Facebook and Instagram, username at ObscurePodcast in all lowercase, and on Twitter, username at ObscurePod, uppercase O, and uppercase P for episode details, previews, and more.